it's not about the tech, it's about the application of the tech to the way we live and to the things we need. So what happens when education uses artificial intelligence in an effective way to personalize lesson plans for every individual? Hello, I'm Frances Keane, your host and founder of Personally Speaking and the B-Side podcast. As a naturally curious person, what I've observed is that often the backstory, what I think of as the B-side, is where the hidden gems really exist. In this podcast series, we get the opportunity to hear from some thought leaders and discover what drives ordinary people to achieve extraordinary things. I am absolutely delighted to have David Rowan with me today. David is somebody I have worked with for a long time and admired for years. He is author of Non-Bullshit Innovation and must read for anyone interested in innovation. He's a sought-after keynote speaker, founding editor of Wired Magazine UK, as well as a tech investor and a startup. Welcome, David, and thank you very, very much for being with us here today. Hi, Francis. Thank you. So, David, one of the first times I met you was around 12 years ago. I came to see you in your office at Wired UK at the time. Small office, but full of gadgets. And I remember one of my lasting memories, my actually almost feeling about that meeting, was your genuine excitement and curiosity about these inventions that you have been sent to explore. And I'm just wondering, if we met the 10-year-old David Rowan, would we have seen that path ahead? So I guess I either have a very short attention span or I'm fascinated by what doesn't yet exist but is going to exist. And one of the things about Wired was we were always looking for where the world was going. And we got quite early into trends and tried to understand, you know, what peer-to-peer economy was going to mean, what happened when, you know, the App Store began in 2007, 2008, and what the implications would be there, and you know what quantum computing would mean for the, the local dentist, um, how politics and society and education and all these other sectors were going to be affected by tech. And I guess as a kid, I got obsessed with ideas I didn't already know. I used to read, before there was this thing called the internet, there were huge compendium books. There was one I remember called The People's Almanac, um, which was about 2,000 pages of hard of paperback book. Um, it was an American book, and it was published by the people who previously did something called The Book of Lists. And The Book of Lists was chapter by chapter, you know, the 10 most gruesome serial killers or 10 insects that eat their lovers, that kind of stuff. And this book, The People's Almanac, had all the information in the whole world. And I just spent hours reading and exploring. I never read novels, I think, but I got into this, which kind of helped me on a journey to becoming a journalist. So I'm still asking the same question. What don't I yet know that I really will need to know soon? There's always going to be things we don't know. So do you know what you're looking for now? Think back, even the time we were meeting. Would you have imagined that you would be having a podcast call with one of your speakers? Would you have imagined you would spend hours every day doing high-quality video calls with groups of people, maybe a couple of hundred people, the other side of the world? Could you imagine that your phone 
would be the way you're monitoring your bodily health. And these things creep up on us. It's a bit like the boiling frog. You don't kind of realize until it's already a done deal. And where technology is fascinating is not what it's capable of. You know, today, there's all these amazing emerging technologies, augmented reality and virtual reality and um, 3D printing. And it's not about the tech. It's about the application of the tech to the way we live and to the things we need. So what happens when education uses artificial intelligence in an effective way to personalize lesson plans for every individual child, and it marks that child's progress as we're going, and in exploring science, you get an immersive 3D world that you can you know, jump inside the volcano and see what's actually going on there. We have the tech, but until it can become processed by the different sectors um, and pulled together and innovated with, um, nothing exciting really happens. So if we take a look at your book, Non-Bullshit Innovation, the title itself gives me a hunch that you got a little bit frustrated with a lot of uh, the jargon. You talk about something called innovation theatre. Can you explain a little bit about what that means to you? Editing Wired and traveling a lot and meeting startups, going to university research labs, talking to the VCs, the venture capitalists who are investing big bucks in the future, um, I got a pretty good position of how change was coming to all sorts of industries. And I got a really privileged front row seat to the people in the organizations who were leading the change. Everything from lab-grown meat to autonomous shipping. And I got asked to do more and more speeches, more and more keynote presentations to senior people in big organizations, whether we're talking, you know, the Goldman Sachs type companies or the Unilever Coca-Cola type companies, because they wanted to know both the risks of keeping still and the opportunities ahead. And, you know, I would translate from that world of the emerging tech, the startups, the VCs to their industry. Um, and quite often the big corporates thought, okay, so what we need to do is a bit of a startup thing. We need to invest in a few startups. We need to have a corporate accelerator or an incubator where we house a few startups, and that will show that we are building the future. And most of the time, if it didn't have the support of the big bosses and the board, it would just be a few people with spiky hair and beards in another building that were not really having any impact. And yet they'd be brought out in the you know, corporate conferences as proof that this bank was investing in the future. And I just kept seeing this, and I kept seeing... Um, you know, a company that makes yogurt having a startup accelerator, um, a company that makes aeroplanes having a startup accelerator. And so often you'd ask, you know, they'd have a head of innovation in the company and often their job title would be really innovative, like the chief digital Sherpa or the chief disruptive growth officer. And you'd kind of ask them, so how have you changed the main company with this startup program? And the answer tended to be, ah, oh, well, it's a bit early, you know, nothing yet, but we think we're in the right place and we're learning. And I'd realized it was going through the motions. I kept seeing this as corporate innovation theater, that 
made everybody feel good. It may have helped the share price, but it wasn't actually delivering anything. And I just didn't want to get jaded because I don't want to be a cynic, but I want to understand whether there are examples that are counter to that, whether there are corporates that were doing really bold innovation, transformation, future building that other people could learn from. And so I started asking around. And as a journalist, you get very comfortable asking lots of people impertinent questions. And people tend to link you to other people. And I ended up going to 20 countries, following up leads, getting inside these organizations and seeing how they were in real time transforming their industry with amazing execution of fresh ideas that I would call proper innovation. So I wanted to contrast what they were doing with you know, the more bullshit approach to innovation and then break down the lessons that other people could learn from what real innovation was. And it ended up being 16 approaches, 16 different approaches people were taking, which um, became 16 chapters in the book. Innovation really stems from leadership qualities, doesn't it? I mean, it's a, it's a cultural thing in an organization. It comes from the people at the top appreciating that there is going to be change. And if you don't prepare for change, then you're going to be left behind. So you actually have to take a risk in undermining today's business in order to build tomorrow's. And, you know, Clayton Christensen famously wrote about the innovator's dilemma. It's very hard if quarter by quarter you're going to the stock market and saying, you know, today's business is doing really well, but we're going to cut it so we can invest in something that isn't yet proven. It's hard to do that. Meanwhile, somebody else comes along without the legacy and they will take your market away. And we keep seeing that with tech companies, you know, Spotify in the music industry as one example. So I started to notice a few common themes with the companies that did seem to get it and were actually taking action. And invariably, it came from the people at the top of the company deciding, no, we really need to change. We can't just hang on and iterate in a gradual way. We have to change. And there's a few kind of common themes to the companies that seem to do the most exciting innovation. Um, they're not generally owned by shareholders in the stock market because that does tend to push you to keeping on doing the same thing. Quite often, they're either... Um, owned by the founder or at least controlled by the founder or the founder's family. Sometimes they're cooperatives owned by the staff or even the customer. Um, there was a bank in Finland, one of the biggest banks, I think the biggest retail bank called Oppa, that was owned by the customers. And they were doing amazing things. They realized that they were competing now with lots of startup fintech banks. And, you know, the differentiators that they had were no longer valuable. So they went back to first principles to think, well, why do we exist? Why are we here? We've been here for 100 years. In the past, we've been here to help Finnish people get through transitions in life, buying your first home, starting a business, borrowing money to buy a car. If a lot of that has been commodified, where can we still stay true to our values and useful? What do people in Finland need? They need to stay healthy. 
let's build five hospitals throughout Finland and let's perform surgery in a really efficient way. They're not going to buy cars maybe in the future. They'll buy access to the network of autonomous electric cars. So maybe the money that we make from lending car buying money um, goes away. Um, why don't we create mobility as a service? Why don't we start to invest in ways that people can use vehicles, but maybe not with ownership? So they created an app where you could rent a car by the minute. So a sense of purpose is really a common theme in where real innovation happens. Go back to where you exist in the first place and kind of trace it forward from there. Existential questioning of why we should exist as a company. And it's often a different thing from how we got big. Often you can get big because, you know, you have an edge as one economic cycle grows. If you are, you know, digging oil out of the ground and it's the 20th century, then great, you can make an awful lot of money selling mining oil. Um, but that's a different thing from realizing you are not an oil company. You are a company that's there to promote industrialization or movement. I'm from the world of journalism. I love mm. journalism. I've always been a journalist since you know, age seven, making a magazine for my sister every day in the summer school. Oh, wow. What was the magazine about, David? Um, it was, you know, asking my mum what had happened to that day and serializing the story I wrote and little crossword puzzles type thing. Okay. It wasn't, wasn't great journalism, but it got me interested. The it problem was a story, is yeah. I had a lovely career editing magazines and newspapers and, you know, running sections at The Guardian. And then the business model of news, particularly newspaper, got a bit challenged. And if I'd stayed in that business, I would have been A, lucky, and B, probably managing decline with a lot of kind of insecure people all around me and budgets being cut. Mm -hmm. um, so I kind of stepped back a bit and thought, well, what is it that really excites me about this? Um, it's the storytelling. It's the finding out new things. There have to be other ways to turn that storytelling into something that's growing in the market. So. I'm now spending quite a lot of my time advising tech companies on their narrative, on their storytelling. And it's fascinating, it's exciting. And some of these companies are growing incredibly quickly, but they still struggle to articulate why they exist, what the purpose is for their staff, why their customers should choose them. So I guess I taken a bit of innovation to what journalism is and I'm still using a lot of the same mindset and skills just mm -hmm. in an expanding marketplace. I also think of you, David, as somebody who likes connecting. So I, I sometimes I think, are you more into technology or the fact of you're connecting to people or connecting to things? Because I think you explain technology as well as sort of a, a connection of ideas often rather than one brand new thing. So when I was running Wired, um, I hosted these monthly dinner salons because I was meeting people from all sorts of different worlds, you know, the architect and the musician and the tech entrepreneur and the um, investor. And 
you realize you bring people together, you bridge the gaps. It can be a really fascinating conversation. And I kind of learned there was a way of curating a conversation, maybe 14, 15 people. You create a single thread discussion. You make people feel comfortable. You set a beginning. You set an ending. Um, and over time, I realized that people can become friends when it's a safe context in which they get to know each other. Um, and I thought, well, building a network and being helpful to other people in a network is a, is a really beautiful thing. I wonder how I can focus a bit more and experiment more. So I started organizing three-day weekends where I'd organize a trip to a magical place and take about 50 people. Um, and, you know, we'd split the cost. I started a, a project called Voyagers, because we're all voyagers on our own lifelong journey, but we're also going to voyage, to travel to an interesting place. Um, and I did um, five of them in the last year. I brought 50 health tech people to Iceland in October, and I have a team that kind of had been to Iceland a couple of times before to set things up, to work out activities. And these are activities designed to get people lost in the moment, to help empower them to be storytellers. We went into the inland and took people 120 meters inside of a volcano that hasn't erupted in 5,000 years, but it was still amazing to go inside. We um, swam in the icy waters very early in the morning. We did um, kind of hikes up a mountain or a glacier, those sorts of things. And each of them, each of these activities gets people talking to each other and kind of revealing themselves. And it makes people bond. And I've now done this with about 250 people coming on a trip from about 30 different countries. It sounds fantastic. What, what I've learned is if you want people to really be themselves and open up and get closer, there's the beginning thing, which is they have to make the commitment to giving up a weekend. You know, we did the Edinburgh Festival last August where I rented a castle not an expensive castle, but it was an amazing historic castle. And then we had a team who would work out what the shows were that we should go and see and get tickets. And then each day we took people to see four or five shows and came back to the castle where we did um, kind of meals together and late night games and stuff. And they became really close. So I think what I've learned is firstly, make people feel safe, take decision-making away from them, try and get them off their devices Secondly, bring out their stories. We have a few tricks that we use to get people kind of revealing who they are. Third, get them playing in some way. So sports, late night games of werewolf, those sorts of things. Um, and fourth, I guess, make them comfortable, whether they're an introvert or an extrovert, don't make them feel under pressure to be somebody they don't want to be. Um, and that can lead to all sorts of unexpected conversations between people that can lead to really interesting places. So you've begun a new community amongst those people. Yeah, it's, it's like my not-for-profit sideline. Um, yeah. I've got a great team of um, 
young, connected producers who help organise individual gatherings. I get the feeling from you, David, you kind of lie there and go, I'd love to just try this. I really want to see if something works. You, you, you're very happy to experiment, see if it works, get people involved. I think you get a real energy out of that. Would that be true? I'm a frustrated entrepreneur, I guess. Um, <laughs> I got too interested in telling stories, so I never set up a business, but I like taking on projects. And yeah. I, I like the energy of other people who are building things. So I think Voyagers, for me, is a way to stay close to you know, creative and entrepreneurial people. So you've travelled an awful lot. I mean, I know that to the work we do together, but also, you know, for your research as long as I've known you, airports has been part of your almost weekly activity. Before lockdown, it was like three planes a week. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I can't even understand it now. But so you travel a lot, you've met an awful lot of people, you've interviewed a lot of people, you've met entrepreneurs. I know you're very much part of the TED community as well. So, you know, you influence people, you get on stage, you help startups, you set to put together communities, uh, you've led magazines. So you've definitely been in a position to influence others. But what influences you? What influences David Rohn? Um, I think people who have certainty about what we need and what's going to happen. I think all of us are battling with what should we be doing? Are we up to it? Do we have the confidence? What if we're too late? What if the business market goes somewhere else? We're all facing huge uncertainty now over you know, what our lives are going to be like if and when lockdown lifts. How can we plan what we're going to be doing in a couple of months? And I get very inspired by people who have clarity of vision and see things that don't yet exist and should exist. And some of the more impressive tech entrepreneurs manage to build teams of talent and inspire them. You know, I, I wouldn't say Elon Musk is necessarily the easiest man in the world. Um, he certainly doesn't mind controversy and pushing his corporate responsibilities to the limit. But he was amazingly clear very early that climate change is going to imperil this planet. We need to take the species as a backup plan onto another planet, Mars. And in the meantime, we need to try and slow down the destruction of this planet. So we need to make electric cars something that more people will actually want. And he's kind of executed. Um, Larry and Sergey at Google started out with the premise that the way we found information online was a mess. From their simple web search interface, um, deciding to build a company that would make you know, all the world's information accessible, etc. Um, it has become a bit of a monopoly in many sectors. It's not necessarily acting in the public interest, but they've been consistent in revealing the world as it is, whether it's digitizing books to digitizing streets. Um, and I think that's a really difficult thing to do before it exists when everybody says, well, you can't possibly do that. So I'm 
always excited when I meet someone who has a sense of certainty. And that can blend into arrogance, I guess. But if they have certainty, then you can start to cross-examine them and question them and try and understand why they're certain and what is that vision that the rest of us don't yet understand. And it makes you think and it makes you adjust your or question your own biases. It makes you think about um, why we're educating ourselves in a certain way just because it was convenient in the Victorian era where you had to provide compliant workers for the new industrial factories. It makes you question why healthcare is still mostly about responding to a signal that the body is broken rather than maintaining the body's health before that signal shows. And of course, would you call these people like Elon Musk, like, are they tunnel efficient? I mean, they're very purpose-driven. I'd call them real entrepreneurs who um, are obsessed with building things that need to exist and don't yet exist. Often, in my experience, um, the really driven entrepreneurs also share some, let's say, negative personality traits. They are trying to prove a point to themselves, to the world. Innovation, I often think, people think, is the, in the ownership of big organizations. You know, innovation starts, I guess, with just one person, doesn't it? I mean, it does, you don't have to be a part of a big organization to be innovating. You see that where smaller teams sometimes maybe innovate even better than some of the bigger teams. So I don't think it's about the size of the organization. I think it's about the ability to empower the whole team to help take the company into a new place. I was talking to somebody who worked for a big corporation and is, let's say, not very happy about it at the moment. And this big corporation publicly proclaims its great innovation strategies and um, has departments that are producing projects that get amazing press. And this person got a meeting with the boss proposing something um, that would help improve our health involving um, an emerging technology that the company was developing. And this could actually have been a really quite interesting new profitable business line. And the boss kind of smiled and said, well, we're keeping an eye on the share price and we don't think that's what's going to boost the share price in the short term. So thanks for suggesting it, but no. Mm. And, you know, you go back deflated and you realize you're never going to come up with another idea that you're passionate about because it's been crushed. And that culture is problematic because whatever the share price is doing today, um, if you rely on yesterday's business model to boost it, eventually gravity is going to catch up. So David, your, your book, Non-Bullshit Innovation, is absolutely super. I think it's coming out in softback soon in the next few months. Is that correct? It published last year in hardback um, by Penguin. I'm going to revisit um, a decent amount of the material to add new examples of how organizations are transforming after this little crisis, because a crisis does focus the mind and kind of it speeds up change that would otherwise take maybe a decade. And if you see what's happening now in people's ability to work from home, 
this is not some new technology. It's a human behavior trait that was already there, mm-hmm. but we've just had this forced experiment and people tend to like it. So, you know, how do we rethink education now? How do we rethink how healthcare operates? How do we rethink public transport? And if you think your business is immune, there are new opportunities. I'm kind of, I'm waiting for the robot hairdresser who will come to your house and cut your hair in lockdown. Well, even if you think of the way you and I know each other, David, is to the speaking circuit, which has always been face-to-face events. And obviously that is not possible um, since March, but we've all adapted to doing all these events virtually. And how are you finding that? How are you finding it as a medium? I like it. I miss the being among people because you get to have kind of unexpected chats that teach you things. And it's actually fun being inside another organization for a while just to learn how they're thinking. I think it'll be a blended solution going forward. I think we'll have face-to-face and then I think it'll be more curated approaches to how we we share content. Uh, on a personal level, I'm currently, I guess, missing the stimulation of being in um, other places where you can spot changes in people's behavior. You can see trends, you can learn things that kind of fill you up. Whenever I go on a talk to a different city, I try and get to meet some of the local startups. So, you know, I was in Helsinki in February and had a dinner with VCs, went to see some startups. Sometimes um, it leads to me making an angel investment in a company, but mostly it's just about learning what's going on. And it's, you know, the physical effort of getting to places, but there's rewards when you've got the front row seat in something that's going to be significant. When I was in Finland, I went to see a startup that's building satellites, you know, 5 million euro, 10 million euro satellites in an office just next to the university. And it's planning to have a constellation of them in the sky, taking images day and night, seeing through cloud cover, so they can work out what's happening on earth for their subscribers. And I was in there and thinking, isn't it just amazing that just by asking questions, you can be allowed into these worlds that are extraordinary and wouldn't have existed a couple of years ago. Amazing. If you could influence that, your reader or your audience in any way, just any one way, what would be the one way you'd like to influence them? Stay curious and explore a world that you think has nothing to do with yours because the chances are they will be using technology in a fresh way that could teach you things. If you are in a conventional business, you know, go to a blockchain conference and just understand how they're thinking. It may make no sense, but at least you can see the way people are talking. If you're in um, corporate finance, go to a creative storytelling conference, understand how people are reinterpreting storytelling. I think there's always, um, just around the corner, people who are thinking in creative ways that could influence you. Yeah, great idea. So diverse thinking, getting out of your comfort zone is important really to the whole thing. That's what you're recommending. Yep. I think at Google X, they talk about cognitive diversity. You bring together a team that thinks in different ways and 
that's leading that leads to creating self-driving cars and so on so david that without further ado i'm going to say i love that that was a great interview and thank you so much and thank you francis for getting your speakers off their sofa talking into their video cameras and microphones and um, still feeling in a small way that we're connecting with the outside world oh you are absolutely and we will continue to do so nice to talk to you <laughs>